There is a second kind of covenant called a suzerainty covenant. And the name comes from ancient history. And these are covenants that have been found by archaeology in various cultures going all the way back to ancient times. And a suzerainty, by because of the name, is a covenant that's entered into with people that are on an unequal status. So they're not equal. In fact, you have a suzerain or a king or a leader of prominence who enters into covenant with his subjects or his vassals, a king and the subjects. And there are documents, archaeology has uncovered, where this happens in uh, ancient cultures. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy, archaeologists have noted that the the structure of the book of Deuteronomy follows the structure of suzerainty covenants. And there are different parts to them, and the book of Deuteronomy outlines within that particular structure, which is interesting. And in fact, Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law. In other words, a second re-entering into the Mosaic covenant with the generation that survived the wilderness experience. The Mosaic law was entered into by Moses and the children of Israel of the Exodus. But remember that generation, because of their rebellion, were not able to enter the land and they lived in the wilderness 40 years until all that generation died out. The book of Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law and you could consider it a covenant document that the children of Israel of the second generation entered into. So these covenants in scripture are not between equals, those that we speak of in terms of God being involved, because God and men are not equals. So they would all be considered to some extent a suzerainty covenant. And the first one that we have in scripture is the Noahic As you can see, the Noahic Covenant, the occasion of the Noahic Covenant is after the Genesis Flood, where we have a new beginning. Everything is new. Everything has been destroyed as a result of the Flood. Noah and his family now must rebuild a new world, basically. And the environment is totally different, totally destroyed as a result of the Genesis Flood, if it's universal, and I believe that it is. The entire geological column is laid down, so all of the geology of the earth, all of the geography of the earth is totally different. So we have a very unfamiliar environment that Noah will enter into, and I also believe scientifically that the conditions are also radically different after the flood than they were before the flood. So this is a new beginning. And if you can imagine being on that boat for over a year, 377 days, including the seven before the rains came, and you observe the destruction afterwards, you would be shaking in your boots. So God intervenes and condescends to the level of man and enters into a covenant, the Noahic covenant. Not because he 
needed to, not because Noah had any claims on God, but because Noah probably needed it. He needed the assurance that there would not be another destruction, another flood as the one that he had experienced. And God gives him that very assurance in the Noahic covenant. So the occasion is this new beginning. And the source of it is God. Noah does not initiate it. Elohim initiates everything and including this covenant. The main content of the covenant is the promise of no flood, no universal flood. And an argument that the flood is universal is just this covenant itself. Because there have been several floods throughout world history in every period of time. And if it were simply a local flood, then uh, God has broken his promise thousands of times over world history. But there has never been a universal flood, and God still is faithful to the Noahic covenant. So that's the content of the Noahic covenant. And the design is to assure Noah that God is is working and God can preserve, God can save, God can judge, but also God can orchestrate things such that in other words, he will not utilize nature to bring another flood. The effects of the flood were upon the entire creation and there's even the possibility that went beyond planet Earth. And God gives a sign. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow So every time we see a rainbow, we should be reminded that God has entered into a covenant, not only with Noah, but his family and even the earth, if you read the details of the text in chapter 9. And there's much more that we could talk about, but I think those are the essential elements of the Noahic covenant. The characteristics of the covenant specifically It's decreed in that God enters into it, and God is the one that spells it out. God is the one that initiates it, so it's a decreed covenant from God. It is unconditional. It's not dependent on anything that mankind does, not dependent on Noah, not dependent on his family, not dependent on anything that transpires in terms of the civilizations later. It is totally unconditional and is only dependent on God. In fact, there are no stipulations that Noah needs to maintain. So it is unilateral and is unconditional. It is a universal covenant because it it will include all of humanity. In other words, all of the descendants of Noah. And it's also universal in that it includes the creation as well. It is certainly gracious. God does not need to enter into covenants, but he chose to in order to give Noah the assurance that Noah would have needed in his experience in his lifetime. It is a covenant that deals with the physical realm, so it has physical aspects to it, not just in relationship to Noah and his family and humanity, but it includes the entire planet at least. And I believe that it has a lot of physical features in terms of God transforming the natural realm. The natural realm was changed. It's different. It's radically different. Peter acknowledges this in 2 Peter 3 when he talks about the the world before the flood. In other words, it was a cosmos. It was a, there was a cosmology that is, was totally different before. And what's implied there is that nature itself 
even constants were probably tweaked and at least affected in some way. And one of the things I do in the Foundations for All Things course is lay out several of the things that we know that are radically different from little statements that we find in the text before the flood and comparing that with the environment in which we live in today. We are living under the Noahic Covenant in the era that uh, spans the Noahic Covenant. So our world is different. The the post-flood world is different from the pre-flood world. And this explains why, for example, dinosaurs went extinct and other things that are different. The entire geological column was laid down all the way down to the Cambrian layer. So all of geology is radically different after the flood than it was before the flood. So it is physical, very, very physical. And the covenant acknowledges that. And the covenant is actually with the earth itself. It's stated in chapter 9. And it's also stated as a permanent covenant, long-lasting, long-ranging. And it appears from Scripture, eschatologically, that it'll be in effect at least until the second coming. And then what is described in the Millennial Kingdom is even radically different from the age in which we live in. So it'll be in effect at least throughout the period of time preceding the second coming. So it's a permanent covenant. Another eschatological implication, and even more than an implication, centers in the passage at the end of chapter 9. We have the words of Noah, and I take them as prophetic. They are oracles, and I think Noah is given insight and given revelation concerning the outcome of his family and his descendants. And we know historically that from the three descendants, we'll talk about them some more, come all of the peoples that followed up to our day. And it'll obviously include people even in the future. And we have in three verses some statements concerning the outcome of these three sons, particularly, and from them, the civilizations that will be derived from them. So in verse 25, so he said, Cursed be Canaan. Now that's related to Ham, a specific curse on one of the descendants of Ham. Ham was the one that was in sin as after the drunkenness of Noah. Now it's not clear exactly what that is. We have little data on that, but the curse will fall on his descendant. And if you think of that, that seems almost unfair, but it's actually a punishment on Ham, because if you think even personally, if God were to inflict a punishment on your children, it would hurt you far more than it would probably hurt your children, and you would feel much more sorrow for the pain that you had caused your children. So it certainly is applicable to Ham. So, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. So, there's going to be a subordinating of the descendants through at least Canaan and probably through Ham as well. And then we have words relating to Shem. He's going to be the line through which Messiah comes. So, he's going to be prominent. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
not a lot there, but there's going to be a relationship between the descendants of Canaan and the descendants of Shem. And then we have a promise concerning Japheth as well. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Another relationship here and let Canaan be his servant. So Japheth is going to be more prominent than Canaan. And we can trace most of the world civilizations, world empires through Japheth. And I think that's somewhat perhaps implied in the words there. So historically, we have a few prophetic words that we can probably look back and see some of the fulfillments of civilization and history as a result of that little oracle of Noah. So that's the eschatology relating to the Genesis flood. The next major event on our timeline after the flood is the scattering, the scattering of the peoples. Now we tend to neglect that one. It's not as prominent as the flood or the fall or the creation, but I think it's very, very important as well. One of the most important things is as a result of the scattering, we have the origin of the nations. So all of the nations can trace their background to Genesis chapter 11, and the, particularly the first nine verses. Chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Shinar is probably the area around the Euphrates River, so that would be present-day Iraq. So that's basically the cradle of civilization. But notice they were speaking one language, same words. In other words, same vocabulary, same structure of language. And they're gathered in the same place, one people. And they organize and rebel against God. They do exactly the very opposite of what God made clear to not only Adam, but also repeated to Noah, that uh, God intended that mankind fill the earth, be fruitful and fill the earth. So God's intent was that mankind would spread and subdue the entire earth and rule over it, and they rebel by doing the very opposite. So verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. So this is self-centered. This is man-centered. And then the rebellion, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The very opposite of God's will, the very opposite of what God revealed. So man organizes to rebel against God, and the rest of the passage leads up to the scattering as a result of the the, uh, confusing of the languages. So that's the origin of languages, and the result of the scattering is the, the nations. Now, I take Genesis 10 chronologically as following after this little narrative in chapter 11, the first nine verses there. And what we have is the result of the scattering and the nations that came about as a result of the scattering from the three sons. So you have the descendants of each of the sons 
laid out in what is called the Table of Nations. That's Genesis chapter 10. Japheth, first of all, he's the oldest. Then we have Ham, who is the youngest, and we have their descendants. And eventually, nations came from them. Then next we have Shem, or last we have Shem, who is the chosen, who is the one through whom the seed of the woman will find its ultimate fulfillment and eventuate in Messiah. Now, the purpose of the table, first and foremost, it gives us the origin of the nations because they're traced back to Noah and then through the three sons. We also have the ethnic affiliations of all peoples during the time of Abraham, particularly. And I think these are the nations that came into play during the age when Abraham was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. So we have these ethnic and national affiliations. And in the midst of that, we have the origin of Israel, because Israel comes from uh, Abraham. So we have the background of Israel, obviously stemming from Abraham. We'll see another covenant, and in fact, the next incident or the next major event or series of events will deal with Abraham. But we'll have the origin of Israel, at least the background, up to Abraham. And one of the points that Paul makes in Acts chapter 17 is the unity of humanity. And I think he alludes to not only this incident in terms of Noah and the flood, but going all the way back to Adam and Eve. There's a unity. So the table of nations shows that unity as well. All of the civilizations, all of the nations... All the ethnic affiliations, all the peoples of the world trace their lineage back to Noah and eventually all the way back to Adam. Now, the distribution of those immediate descendants of Japheth, Ham, and Shem are shown on this Google Earth map. The ones in the blue would be the descendants of Japheth, and it's believed that most of the Europeans, the Areas to the east of Europe as well, like Russia, that whole area, come from uh, Japheth. Major civilizations, major empires, Javan, the entire Greek culture comes through them. In Turkey, we have Tyrus, Meshech, Magog, Medai. So those are the descendants of Japheth. Defendants, uh, descendants of Ham would be the green ones to the bottom there of the slide. The most prominent one, obviously, the one that is called out is Canaan, and the, the children of Israel will have most contact with Canaan. They'll have a lot of contact with Misraim, because that's Egypt, and also some with Put, that's Libya and Cush, where probably most of the African cultures come from. And then the descendants of Shem would be the red, and we have Lud, Aram, Asher, Arpachshad, and Elam. Arpachshad would be the forefather of Abraham and his family, so the line would be traced through him. But we have the background of the Arameans, the background of the Assyrians, and obviously the background of Babylon as well, Babylonians later. And it's believed that the Eastern peoples, Chinese, Japanese, etc., there's different theories, but it, some believe that it would be a combination of Medai and Elam. So that would account for present-day peoples as well. So that's the table of nations and their distribution. And 
Obviously, the line from Adam can be traced on this timeline, and the genealogies in chapters in chapter five, where we have Adam and the descendants through Seth, and I've got the flood on there and Babel as well. The next slide is just a blow up to show the descendants from Noah to to Abraham. I date Babel based on a little passage that is in uh, Genesis chapter ten where it speaks of the dividing of the earth in the days of Peleg. And the days of Peleg would be the line just above Babel there. He lived a little over 300 years and beginning about 100 years after the flood. And it makes sense to put Babel as close to the flood as possible because there are several civilizations that arise in the time frame between Babel and Abraham. And I went into some detail on that on the foundations course. So that's the second implication of the scattering, the origin of the nations. The third one is the beginning of the world system. And this looks in terms of eschatology. Eventually, the Bible speaks of Babylonianism all the way in the book of Revelation. And I'll discuss that a little bit more when we talk about Revelation in chapter 17 and 18. But the origin of the world system described as Babylon in Revelation, so we can call it Babylonianism, begins at Babel. That's the origin. It begins at Babel where man, for the very first time, as a culture, as a civilization, you might even say as an empire, first rebels against God collectively rebels. So the essence of Babylonianism throughout its history is the world system, epitomized by Babylon, the culture that destroyed the nation of Israel later in its history. So the essence is the world system. And the history persisted from Babylon to the time of the kingdom of Israel, somewhat in the background, And then it became prominent again when the Babylonians destroyed the nation of Israel. And it's that imagery that the book of Revelation picks up. And in the future, there's going to be a revival of Babylonianism, a world empire that, again, is in rebellion against God. And the destruction of Babylon is portrayed for us in Revelation 17 and 18. So this concept that begins in Babel is going to persists throughout world history, and it's going to culminate in the final destruction of the final world empire that raises its fist up against God in Revelation 17 and 18, immediately preceding the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. So, eschatologically, real quickly here, the origin of the language, we that has been fulfilled, and ever since, languages have been changing and evolving and new ones arising, but basically from the original languages that were confused at Babel. So that's largely fulfilled, and interestingly, there's a little bit of evidence that ultimately it appears that there will just be just one language Ultimately, perhaps even in the millennial kingdom and certainly in the eternal state. The day of Pentecost, when languages were able to be interpreted, may be a little bit of a foretaste of a unified and a communication that is more free in the future. So that's eschatological. Also, the nations, 
have already had a long history. So that began at Babel. So eschatologically from the perspective of Babel, we have the long history of the nations. And the nations will persist throughout world history. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, the end of chapter 20, the nations rebel once again, even During the millennial kingdom, there's a final rebellion, a final Babylonianism, you might even say. And ultimately, those nations also will be judged and will stand before God at the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation chapter 20. But that's not the end of the nations. If you read the book of Revelation, you find out that there is even a future of the nations past world history because they occur in the eternal state. But during the millennial kingdom, we have Isaiah 2.4. That's a passage that refers to the millennial kingdom. It's a millennial reference, a kingdom reference, and it speaks of the nations. So the nations are prominent. In fact, they will enter the kingdom believing people And through the thousand years, there'll be enough unbelievers that'll be generated from them that there will be that final rebellion. But Isaiah 2.4 is a millennial passage, and it says, And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. That's millennial. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That's millennium. That's the millennium, millennial kingdom, when there'll be peace, universal peace under the Messiah. And then the nations have a future in Revelation 22.2. I'll start in verse 1. And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Remember we mentioned the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Notice the last little clause there. And the leaves of the tree, or at least the leaves there, were for the healing of the nations. This is the eternal state. Revelation 21 and 22 describes eternity, or we commonly refer to that as heaven. So the nations have their beginning at Babel, And they persist throughout history, and God has a plan for them. So nations are part of a long-range plan in the overall plan of God. Today we're going to continue where we left off last week in our foundations. And we'll do a, I'll do a quick review. I think this is real important, and it doesn't hurt to see it again anyways. What I tried to stress... Last time was that there's a there's a plan behind all of Scripture. You might even call it a meta narrative. In other words, a big picture of God's plan that I think Scripture gives us that you can uh, somewhat discern from the flow of Scripture. And what I try to do is capture that, teach a whole course on it called Biblical Foundations for All Things, and. Some of what we're doing here will reflect that course, but since it's a biblical foundation for all things, then it's also a biblical foundation for eschatology. So if you understand this plan and where 
God is heading, then it helps us to better understand eschatology because eschatology is just a study of the, the last part of that plan. In other words, how it all culminates. It's better to understand the things leading up to it because then we better understand the end, end of it. And I think also another reason is if I think you understand this overall picture, it eliminates all the other different viewpoints concerning eschatology. And I hope you'll capture that as we get into it and see that. So everything starts with creation. And if we have a distorted view of creation, then we have a foundation that is faulty and it'll affect all of the rest of our understanding of Scripture. And you see that work out. We mentioned the fall. That is very, very important because the original creation was a very good creation, but it's damaged as a result of the fall. We're living in a post fall world affected by that so these are like foundation stones that build and build and build and even within that we looked at the passages dealing with genesis three fifteen, where god lays out the rest of what he's going to do in his great plan in other words the rest of world history is summarizing what is contained in three fifteen, and we're in the middle of it so we don't see all of it as clearly but god through world history is resolving the problem that was created by the first sin by Adam and Eve. So I see the rest of world history a summary of God dealing with Adam and Eve's sin, as it's mentioned in 3.15. And the way God has to deal with sin is by judgment, and that's the flood. So we have a vivid, vivid example, and also the fact that those early generations degenerate. That's the nature of sin, where God must intervene. And all of the judgments of Scripture are God intervening in time to resolve the issue of sin. Now, he doesn't do it all at once. So there's a series of judgments, and there have been in the past. The flood kind of sets the foundation for all the following ones. We looked at the scattering. The scattering is also very important and foundational in that that's where we find the nations. The nations come about as a result of scattering. And all of this is preceded by God not only predicting things, but also laying out something of his plan. It's not as clear in the early chapters as it becomes clearer and clearer as we move through history. But what God intended was that man rule the earth, and he would rule the entire earth. And at Babel, man very clearly rebels against what was clearly revealed to not only Adam, but also to Noah, and that man was to scatter and to rule over the earth. And God must intervene in order to accomplish what he intends. And we have the scattering as a result of the confusion of languages. And from that come the nations, and God has a plan for the nations. They fit within that plan, and I laid out some of that last time. Even into eternity, Revelation 22.2 mentions the nations. And by the way, the word, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, Goyim in the Hebrew could be translated nations or Gentiles. In some contexts, it's translated one way or the other way, either way. Same idea. In other words, all non-Jewish people, all people outside of those that God has basically chosen for himself. So also the Greek word ethne, that also could be translated either way. So we have the nations or Gentiles. There's no Jews at this time, but... Obviously, these are people that are unbelieving. Here and there, there are believers. 
an example in Genesis is Melchizedek. He comes as a believer, and he's mentioned in the narrative with Abraham. But what God is going to do is he's going to reject the world system and call out of the world system one individual. And he makes promises that will eventuate into the nation, Israel. So Abraham is foundational to the entire nation. And from that nation, that will be his people, his nation, amongst the rest of the nations. We mentioned last time the scattering tells us that God basically rejects the nations. And now he's going to work to raise an individual by the name of Abraham from the nations, converted The nation eventuates, and the high point is a kingdom, because God wants to rule the earth through his people. But because it's made up of sinful people, we have a collapse of the kingdom. Even though it's a long period of time, that kingdom is formed, and then it collapses. And it's in that midst that what's missing is a messianic person that will ultimately deal with the problem of evil. He will be one amongst mankind. And here's where we have all the prophecies, or the majority of the prophecies that deal with the coming of a Messiah. So everything is heading in the direction of man ruling, and when Messiah comes, he will establish God's kingdom, the ruling idea. But Messiah arrived, that's first first century, and he offers the kingdom. We'll talk about that. And because the king is rejected by the nation, essentially, now we have an issue, we have a problem. What's, what's going to happen now? There's an interim period of time, and Jesus makes some prophecies and makes some Old Testament eschatology clearer that there's going to be a second coming, which is not clear till you get to the New Testament. Jesus introduces us to that eschatological aspect. So in the interim, and the early disciples had no idea how long that period would be, We have what is called a church, and Jesus predicts that he will build his ecclesia. And it's taken 2,000 years. This is kind of the way God works. He doesn't necessarily work immediately. He has a long-range plan. And some of the prophecies of the New Testament refer to the second coming, and when the Messiah returns, he will establish a millennial kingdom. And it's in that kingdom that God will rule over his people, and there'll be a millennial kingdom. Revelation 20 tells us that that kingdom will end in judgment, and then we enter the eternal state. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the plan of God in broad strokes, and how everything builds upon everything else. So there's a plan that flows, and if we understand that, we're going to see the characteristics of that millennial kingdom, which is going to eliminate all except a futurist premillennial view, And if you understand some of the details, it's going to eliminate some of the other viewpoints that deal with the rapture, etc. And we'll get into all that detail as we progress through the course. So, all of world history, all of the Bible in one slide. (laughs) Okay. So, last time, we left off with the scattering, and the next major event is Abraham. And I'm putting these events on a timeline, and especially to emphasize these early events. These early events are just as historical as any event in world history, just as historical as the life of Abraham Lincoln, for example, more recent. To emphasize their historicity, their real events that really took place, just as they're described in Scripture, 
because the culture in which we live in, the world in which we live in, denies them and looks at them as legends or mythological and denies the reality of them and robs them, obviously, of their power. So I put them on a timeline using the most conservative chronology that you can essentially come up with, and I use Honer's chronology primarily, and using that you can come up with a 4,143 B.C. date for creation, then everything else kind of fits after that. So we've looked at the creation, very good creation, that is damaged by the fall, that eventuates into the flood, that also you see the cycles of sin, degeneration, eventuating into the issue at Babel. And then from Babel, God is going to work through generations to call out an individual by the name of Abraham. So let's take a look at Abraham, and then we'll look at some of the other major events for our foundation here. And this is just an expansion of that chronology to give you a feel for the generations that passed. And something happened at the flood. I'm not going to make a big deal out of here, but I go into a great detail on the issue of the flood. And you can just visually even see it in the length of time that people lived. Something physical took place. And one of the points I make is just as the creation was radically affected by that first sin and the entire universe was affected, so also at the flood, all of the creation is affected as a result of the Genesis flood as well. It seems that there are some constants that are tweaked at least. There are some processes that were changed. And you see that not only in the ages, but you see little hints elsewhere in the narrative as well. So you have longevity of life reduced after the flood. And it explains a lot of things, why things went extinct, like dinosaurs and that sort of thing. I think all of the dinosaurs, except those on the ark, were destroyed by the Genesis flood. We have evidence of that in the fossil record. In fact, the fossil record is overwhelming evidence for a worldwide catastrophic like a flood. So there's overwhelming evidence for a Genesis flood. So I just put that, that's the chronology of Genesis. So the last event is the death of Joseph, 1774, in the book of Genesis. I'm using this slide to kind of bring to the forefront the implications of this major event or series of events. In other words, the whole life of Abraham, the significance of Abraham, and the, the implications that we can draw from that. The number one... I was thinking about the significance of Noah's overlap since he was there before and after. Oh, yeah. In fact, you might even notice from this, Shem lives almost to the end of Abraham's life. And Noah lives... I think there's a one-year difference between the death of Noah and the birth of Abraham, mm-hmm. if you follow the chronology of Genesis. So Abraham could learn from Noah about the... Uh, he could have learned everything from Noah, well, no, from Shem. From Shem. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. Who, who went through it. Who was, yes, yes, exactly. Who was I, was there? Gonna, I was looking at you. Like, <laughs> That's pretty incredible, before the brains deteriorate. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and like, like I say in the foundations class, I make a big deal out of that as well. That's why civilizations could flourish and grow so rapidly because the technology was carried over past the flood by at least Shem and others that were closely. 
First implication, the rejection of the world system. Now, it's not stated explicitly, but you see that in that God calls an individual out, and if you put all the uh, events together, you can come to this conclusion, that God is going to deal as he normally does. In fact, I'm not going to develop it here, but one of the doctrines that you can develop that finds its roots in the story of Abraham is the whole doctrine of election, the idea that God selects individuals. Now, don't get confused necessarily with the soteriology doctrine that's related to the call of Christians, but the idea of God selecting out of many, which the doctrine in the New Testament of election, I think, is based on, I think you could trace it back to Abraham because God, out of all of the nations, rejecting that system calls out individuals. And Joshua tells us Abraham was an idolater. His family, his culture, he himself worshipped other gods. But he's an example of a conversion to Yahweh, and from him God's going to make some outstanding promises. So these unbelieving nations, we could say, from this implication, there's a lot of conclusions we can come to concerning them. First of all, in general... They're not only unbelieving, but there's a great flaw in all these great civilizations. Because after the flood, the book of Genesis doesn't stress these civilizations. The Egyptian empire, the, uh, the cultures that flourished, the Sumerians, probably considered the earliest culture uh, archaeologically. But the Egyptians, the Sumerians, and those that followed, these were great civilizations, And you even see great civilizations before, hinted at, before the flood, but the great flaw of all of these civilizations is the problem of sin. So God must deal with sin. The call of Abraham is part of the process of God dealing historically with sin. And it takes conversion, and that's what we have with Abraham. That's the great flaw. The flaw of great civilizations. Is sin. The flaw of great civilizations They have music, they have technology, they have... If you study the Sumerians, if you study the Egyptians, in fact, the Egyptians are a great example. You visit Egypt today, they built structures that we cannot build today, that last thousands of years, 4,000 years. In our own lifetime, they built the Astrodome in Houston, talking, and they're kind of debating what to do, I think, they passed some resolution or something to make it a historical site by those that want to preserve it. But it's, you know, it's obsolete. It's fallen apart. you got to maintain it. It costs millions of dollars. Yeah, there's a show. That, there was a documentary, actually, about those great nations and how they built stuff and scientists, archaeologists, and whatnot, trying to figure out how, how did they do in it? the world, did they actually do that? And they they're actually they rebuilt some of the stuff. Yep. to see if it would work, and it's, it's just amazing. They, were yeah. like, they, they, had, they didn't have internet, they didn't have what we have, but they certainly had the technology in their heads, which is... In some ways, they mind. had more than we had. Exactly, yes. <laughs> I know, right? I'm seeing like the technology. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, as great as those civilizations are, the main flaw and why they collapse, why they come and go, is because of sin. And it's just an illustration that God needs to intervene to deal on a spiritual level, first. They had revelation. The unbelieving nations had revelation. That's illustrated by little notes like Melchizedek. He appears in the life of Abraham, 
and he appears to be a godly man from the nations, Melchizedek. He's an important person that even finds mention in the New Testament. So they had at least Genesis 3.15. They had a summary of a gospel message. They had adequate revelation to be able to trust Yahweh. And it's evidenced by, like I said, Melchizedek. Thirdly, there's Melchizedek. Uh, he's the shining example. And Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. So there, there's contact, there's evidence, there's relationship there. And this is all in the setting of these unbelieving nations. So there's no Jews yet, unless you consider Abraham the first Jew, but basically comes from the nations, converted. And it's going to be through Abraham that we have the eventual nation of Israel. So he's called out of the nations. Leave your family, leave your nation, leave everything, and you keep going until I tell you when to stop. So that's kind of the implication that we want to draw from that. And just on a map, there's Ur that's mentioned in chapter 11. Southern, if you will, south or southeastern Iraq today. Persian Gulf is not on that slide, but it's not too far to the uh, southeast there. Up the Euphrates River Valley or between the Tigris-Euphrates when he leaves. We just have little details in the Genesis text, but he stops at Haran until his father dies, and then he proceeds down to Shechem, and that's where he's to stop in the land of Canaan. That's the land that God promised him. And just on a map of Israel, there's where Shechem, somewhat in the middle of the land of Canaan. I'm trying to arrange a trip to Shechem on the Israel. It's on the West Bank, so it's harder to but this is what it looks like today. It's right between Mount Ebal and Gerizim. So this photo is from Mount Gerizim, looking across. And down in the bottom is ancient Shechem, and there's an archaeological site. It's also the same site as where Jesus had interaction with the woman at the well. It's called Sychar in that passage. That's looking to the... Yes. Yeah, looking north. <laughs> and from that... Abraham eschatologically fits in the plan of God to resolve the, the problem of evil. That's one of the main significance of Abraham. God is dealing historically to deal with evil. And it's going to be through Abraham's seed. He's going to have descendants. Starts with the seed of the woman, but it's not Cain. In fact, it's not even any of the other seed. It's not Seth, but it's through Seth. It's not Noah, but it's through Noah. And the third son, Shem, it'll be through Shem, but now it's going to eventuate through Abraham. So God is unfolding this, this plan that I laid out there. And it's God's plan to resolve evil. So God's ultimate plan, resolving the problem of evil. Secondly, there is the kingdom of man, first of all. The nations, and you'll see them throughout world history, the kingdom of man. It, it attempts to be autonomous, in other words, self-centered apart from God, in fact, generally rejecting God. And what God is going to do through Abraham eventually is going to create the kingdom of God, his kingdom, that will eventuate into a kingdom based on grace and through faith. And that's Abraham, the story of Abraham. So he's the beginning of this kingdom of God that will be created. And again, it's a rejection of the world system because God's going to create a counterculture. And all of this looks ahead. It looks eschatologically. It looks to the future. We just have the beginnings of it with Abraham. Second implication, 
And what's very important is this covenant that God enters into with Abraham. I gave you some background on covenants last time. I gave a lot of detail on the nature of covenants. They are contracts. They are contracts. God does not need to enter into contracts with man. He's chosen. I gave you some of the purposes last time. He's chosen to enter into contract. And what a contract does is it binds parties legally. God has chosen to bind himself legally. Man has no claim on God, so God does not have any need to do this. He does it to give first Noah assurance, and now he's going to do it to give Abraham assurance. Covenants or contracts were very common in the day of Abraham. I gave you examples of several of them. So this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is probably the most important implication relating to Abraham apart from just the descendants that will come. So eschatologically, this covenant is God's long-range covenant that is going to lay out for us basically the parameters of all of the rest of world history from Abraham on. Very significant. And we can look back from our perspective and see how all of world history has somewhat been in conform. Well, not somewhat exactly in conformity with what God basically entered into covenant with Abraham. All of the nations that have cursed or persecuted the nation of Israel, all of them have collapsed historically. Those nations that have blessed the nation of Israel have been blessed, including ours. And that'll be the case. And that'll continue until the end of world history, part of the covenant. So it's God's long-range covenant that encompasses all the rest of world history. And the history of this covenant, it's promised only. It's not instituted in chapter 12, but it's promised there. It's somewhat reiterated as a promise in chapter 13. So the first three verses of chapter 12 give us the essence of what will eventually be a covenant. In that passage, it's just a promise. Chapter 13, reiterated. It's not instituted until we get to chapter 15. Now it becomes a covenant. So the essence of it, let's read those passages. Eric, why don't you start off and we'll go read uh, just verse 1, first of all. Most of this is personal. Most of this pertains to Abraham, but it's in promised form, and then you'll see the other elements. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. That's primarily Abraham, and this was given while he's still at Ur. In other words, the promise was made before he left. So chronologically, it's a little out of order. This is not unusual. Remember last time I also said that Genesis chapter 10 is probably the result of what happened in chapter 11, the first nine verses. As a result of the scattering, this is how what the outcome was. In other words, these are the nations that eventuated. And what we have are the nations, if you study the historical background, the details of it, these are probably the nations, the ethnic groups, the languages that existed in the day of Abraham. So we know these are the peoples that Abraham had to deal with. And eventually, the nation of Israel would deal with these nations as well, particularly Canaan. Canaan attention is drawn to them. So also, this is probably out of order, and in verse 1, this was probably spoken, this revelation was given while he's still in Ur, but we're put forward here, this is the promise. So it primarily deals with Abraham, 
And implied in this, I'm having you leave because I'm pulling you out of the world system. I'm pulling you out. So you're to leave because I'm rejecting the world system. I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to work through you. And that are you want to do verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now that is part of the covenant that God will eventually enter into. It'll involve... It has to involve a descendant. Abraham has no children at this point. And his wife is barren, and they're both old. So it's going to be a supernatural work. God is going to work it. And it's going to eventuate into a great nation. And God is going to continually bless him, part of the covenant. And his name's going to be great. And even today, we still recognize Abraham. So so does Islam. So does the world, basically. The Arab world, in large measure, comes from Abraham. And then, so you shall be a blessing. So we have three elements in there, and it'll become a covenant. We won't look at all the details, but I want you to see it here. And this is very important, verse 3. Jim, do you want to do that one? I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is so long-range... In, in scope, that it, it it has never been totally fulfilled. There's still a future fulfillment of that. It has largely been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 tells us that. In fact, Paul in Galatians 3 ties what Jesus did back to the Abrahamic covenant. I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, that last part there. But it is also a summary of world history in what I told you before, the blessing or the cursing of those, depending on how they deal with the nation that will eventuate from Abraham. And then in chapter 15, it's made into a covenant. And Mark, let's skip down, read verse 18. Skip down to verse 18. A lot of this is reiterated, a reiteration of chapters, chapter 12, the first three verses there. But now it's made into a covenant, and it's after this interesting ceremony that takes place. But read verse 18. We'll skip over that. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this Okay, so there's descendants. What? Give what? Land. Land. All right. And we don't need to read the rest of it. Uh, He lists it. These are Canaanite tribes. It's in the land of Canaan. So it's going to involve descendants, it's going to involve land, and in chapter 17, it speaks also of blessing, and implied in some of the passages here, it implies a blessing as well. So it's instituted in 15, and some of the provisions for Abraham, he will be a blessing, God will make a great name, God's going to protect him, so these are some of the provisions. It'll eventuate into a nation with the name Israel, and this is long range, because he has no children, his wife's barren. And throughout, we have several promises that his descendants are going to be greater than the sand of the sea. Another place, greater than the number of stars in the heaven. I'm going to use this background slide to kind of emphasize the essence of a covenant, and the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. What's the first thing that we remember of covenants? It requires to have what? Parties, not always two, but at least two parties that are involved. So from the text, we can pull out that God is the main party 
And we said last time that because God is involved, these covenants are unique from all other covenants, all other contracts that have ever existed. And I gave you Albright's quote last time. It's with Abraham and God, and it also includes descendants. So all of the descendants of Abraham fall within that this covenant. Those are the parties. And covenants have what? What's the essence of them? Stipulations, conditions, or requirements, you might say. So there's no rule of perpetuities. What do you mean? There might be, yeah. There, we talked about a term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is a term to some of them. Some of them are not stated. So you have stipulations. And we saw from these passages, there are three major elements. Now, there's sub-elements as well. There's other elements or stipulations, you might say. The main ones of this, a seed, first of all, an individual that will result in more descendants from him and eventually enough descendants that you can't even count them from the nation of Israel. A seed, the major stipulation. And I don't have it on this slide, but what is a major characteristic of all contracts besides the stipulations? What does it measure or what does it uh, encapsulate? Performance. Performance, exactly. A very important element. What God is binding himself to do is to produce a seed that Abraham cannot produce. It's got to be a supernatural birth. Not a virgin birth, but supernatural His wife is barren, and he is old. And the narrative kind of stresses that, because Abraham can't figure out how's God going to do this. Maybe it's through my handmaid. Maybe it's through Hagar. Maybe that my servant is going to be that descendant that's going to produce. God says no. And you see that through the text. So the first stipulation that God binds himself legally to produce is that first seed that will eventuate in others. And we still have Jewish people today. And God is not done with the nation of Israel because he has not completed fulfilling what he has bound himself by covenant to do. It includes the land, includes the land. In fact, that passage, if we had followed it through, that Mark had read the rest of it, it speaks of a river of Egypt. It may not be the Nile, but it could include the Nile. There's another river that may be the river of Egypt further east. But it specifies very clearly Euphrates in that Genesis 15 passage. Nation of Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land that God has entered into covenant to occupy. So there's some future elements here. They've occupied part of it, and probably the greatest extent was in the time of Solomon. That's kind of the high point of the nation of Israel, the period of Solomon. And that's a good place to end our talk today.